APU. American Public University is proud to present Exploring STEM. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we are talking to Dr. Zona Kostic, Program Director of Computer Science. Our conversation today is about artificial intelligence. And welcome, Zona. Hi. Hi, everyone. Nice to be here with all of you. And thank you so much, Bjorn, for having me. Oh, of course. No worries. I'm excited about this conversation. Of course, I know zero about artificial intelligence besides articles I've read. And so I'll go and jump into the first question is, can you explain what artificial intelligence is? Yes. Okay. Well, that's a really tough one, actually, because we always kind of find a hard time to explain what, what AI is, given that there are so many different terms right now. There are so many different models. There are also term, There is also terminology such as uh, machine learning or big data. So all of these terms kind of point towards the same way, which is how we are using data, massive amounts of data to resolve certain problems or to actually expediate coming up with, with certain answers. So in terms of artificial intelligence, it actually uses machine learning as modeling principle and artificial intelligence should be seen as an application of ML rather than exactly the same term. I also mentioned big data and big data in, in all this family of machine learning and AI applications is basically focusing on large amounts of data that couldn't be processed with current machine learning uh, technologies that we are using right now. So for example, if we want to process a very simple data set, figuring out um, an average income, we can do it using ML applications. But if we are talking about average income for, for example, the entire United States, or even if we want to come up with much bigger discoveries, we will need to employ big data applications, which are slightly different than AI. But as well as all of these machine learning, big data is part of the same family. So we are processing data in order to come up with a certain answers. And that's wonderful because honestly, for me, when I heard artificial intelligence, machine learning, I didn't know how those two related or the same. And of course, we've heard about big data for a while. And that totally makes sense. And it totally makes sense that only recently within human history, that computers are only now starting to get fast enough to see some results. So as a follow-up question, how far are we from seeing some real tangible benefits from, say, AI, you know, because of the advancement of computers? Yes. I also forgot to mention that having a computational power is one thing. Having large amounts of data, it's sort of a trick here because we're fighting right now misuse of data, yet at the same time, we need large amounts of data in order to be able to come up with certain results. So on the side, having a computational power and uh, working with large amounts of data, we can see some interesting, even fascinating results with artificial intelligence. Not only when it comes to gaming, because this is the, one of the, the most interesting field where we saw that uh, artificial intelligence or automation is capable of winning most of the games, actually winning in the competition will, with uh, world champions. For example, AlphaGo is one of them. But what's also interesting is that we are seeing a lot of improvements in certain fields such as medicine or as well as uh, education. You know, we are at the APS here. We are working 
uh, 100% online, you know, how we can use AI to actually help our own students, not only computer science students, but all the other students. So these are, you know, all of these domains where we can see breakthrough in AI. And that's great, you know, because as myself in what I do here at APU, AMU, is I would love to have a crack at big data so I can help better craft the learning experience for students. But it seems like at universities, and of course, most schools out there, there's just so much data that somebody like me has no idea how to sift through it all and to really get usable material. And that's where I'm sure a computer scientist like you helps come and write the code or uh, the algorithms that help us make sense of just so much information, even something like adaptive learning. Or automatic assessment, for example. This is where we, we all can benefit from. Yeah, and there's just so many things that, I'll say currently, higher education is still lagging because it takes some real capital, of course, to develop this. And so that uh, leads me to the next question. What are some benefits of AI for the average person? And what are some of the benefits of AI for, say, corporations and uh, government? Ooh, it seems like uh, we have a completely different, different needs and different benefits. So actually, uh, corporations are benefiting from average people. Uh, government is still fairly closed. So the biggest issue that, that the government has is they're trying to, to reach this goal and become at least powerful when it comes to AI to compare themselves to China because China has this big goal of becoming AI world leader by 2035. And this is pretty far away in the future, even in, the, in these tech years. You know, 2035 is not something that we can actually predict right now with enough certainty. But uh, government has a pretty big issue right now is that they're closed. They have a really big established bureaucratic system and change uh, happens really slow. So I, I see a certain shift that government started employing corporations to help them resolve certain issues, but also government cannot share data this easily. So th there are certain problems over there. An average person you know, average person can benefit from many different perspectives and can benefit from many different applications. For example, I've discovered recently an application for this new normal. So it's like a COVID-based application where users can just switch it on and go outside, walk, and the application will actually try to figure it out. Is there any person nearby who might be having COVID? Uh, and they're going to do it based on coughing. So right now, the company is asking kindly to uh, submit as many samples as possible so their own application could be as accurate as possible. And of, of course, all of our coughing samples will be anonymized. But I can see that as, an, as a really good example right now. Yeah, and uh, as far as COVID, any kind of way in which computers can help track and predict a possible spread of COVID is, of course, a benefit. Uh, so a follow-up to that question is, what are some potential privacy issues? Because to be able to have that kind of usable data, I'm assuming, uh, say, our cell phones or whatnot would have to eavesdrop on us, which the benefit is, if you have it set up correctly, you instantly know potentially who's sick. The downside of it, especially for civil libertarians, is somebody's listening to you. Mm -hmm. True. There are 
applications that are also trying to help. Basically, they're bringing benefits to the average person while making sure not to violate privacy and to keep the data safe. Right now, there is a new domain called uh, federated learning in which we are basically training this main machine learning algorithm on servers using completely anonymized data. And then if we want to benefit from the data of our own users, then we're going to retrain model, but not using their own data. We're going to just retrain model on their own cell phone and benefit from so-called weights or a new intelligence and update the major model with new intelligence. So I believe we can all benefit from this type of AI and still be sure that, that our data is only with us and it basically stays on our own cell phone. Uh, that's fascinating because, and I'm glad we talked about China briefly, and you said they have a goal of being a leader in AI by 2035? Yes. China's so interesting because if they put their mind to it and if the government supports it, then the full weight of the Chinese government is behind it. Which, you know, being an authoritarian communist government means that everybody's on board. Of course, one of the challenges of the U.S. is that everything is decentralized. Um, you know, the government has power, but limited power, which, my personal opinion, is a much better way than an autocratic communist government. But what do you think some of the challenges of the U.S. will be to be able to compete with China? Is it, say, the free market? and allowing for innovation with corporations and businesses? Yeah, I think the, the biggest challenge, again, is going to be education. <laughs> because we are actually providing the best possible AI education, including a fairly big number of Chinese students. So these students are educating in, in, in our own schools, and we are not really taking care of them. We are not making sure that they're going to stay. So I think this is going to be a biggest challenge. So are we going to ruin our own education? Of course not. We need to figure it out how my personal idea, and it might be not something uh, realistic, is to think of how we can collaborate, how we can basically benefit from the, the best of, of both worlds, which I'm pretty sure it's possible. Right. Um, and to me, again, my own personal opinion, there's absolutely no reason why anybody can't collaborate especially AI, to me, it comes down to bad faith politics. If somebody says, I can only win, and the other side says, I can only win. And then that just creates conflict. But humans, <laughs> humans have conflict and have always had conflict. Excellent. So the next question is, um, are there any AI applications specifically useful for the new normal? Oh, yeah. For example, when it comes to COVID, I mentioned the, the coughing app. There are applications who are actually employing computer vision machine learning systems in order to understand, based on the first MRI images, who might be a congested person. We all know that there is a pretty big subdomain of AI and drug discovery, as well as gene sequencing. Uh, and this is where probably, you know, AI is also making yet another breakthrough with this new vaccine that Pfizer is going to very, very soon if they didn't do it. On a side of medicine, so maybe, you know, we do have COVID is a really important problem to solve right now. And of course, the most interesting topic would be to talk about the applications of AI in medical domain. But I'm not a medical expert. So this is why I'm like, okay, I know that there are applications. I do have a lot of fellow postdoc researchers who are working in this domain. 
I'm also interested personally as a researcher, as an AI researcher in applications that are coming from some other domains, such as VR or AR applications. Education, of course, this is going to be always my first love and my primary goal to apply AI in an application domain. So we have Zoom. So we didn't actually mention, but Zoom is one of the most appropriate AI application. And we think it's just the application to for, for teleconferencing, but it is backed up with a lot of machine learning algorithms. Let's just use, for an example, all of these virtual backgrounds. So they're using machine learning algorithm to actually help us, you know, stay within a nice and, and comfortable room. We also have, I mentioned, automatic assessment. Cell phones these days, they've been used for so long. But even right now, uh, we're seeing so many cell phone-based applications. And when I say cell phone-based applications, I do mean AI as a backup of this app. So we don't have libraries anymore, for example. This is one of the research projects that I was working on. And how are we going to bring libraries back? I've seen in my own neighborhood that there are so many of these small house libraries people put like a small house with a couple of books so you can freely go walk in just take up take a book and bring it back after you're finishing reading so right now there is this idea of if i touch too many books maybe i'm gonna put someone else in danger but i really want to take a look at this book and figure it out is it according to my own personal taste we developed the application in which person can just take their own cell phone, take a picture of a book spine and obtain all possible information about this book. Uh, so they don't even have to open it and then take a look at it and type the title. All the information can be taken, can be actually retrieved based on a, on a book spine. Right now we are working on if we have a multiple book spines, we can compare all of these book spines and recommend books that are good for this specific reader. So I, I believe a lot of cell phone-based applications are those that are going to be interesting for this new, new, new normal. Oh, for sure. Just speaking about education, it's amazing how people use their cell phone for a lot of what they do as far as learning goes. For me, that's very difficult. I need a computer. I need something larger, at least a tablet, to truly kind of delve into information. But I know for a lot of people, you know, when it comes to learning, they do, you know, forums or discussions on their cell phone, which is fine. They do a lot of reading on their cell phone, which is, of course, great. It's maybe extremely difficult to do actual assignments on a cell phone. That would be tough, but iPads are actually possible for it right now. Yeah, and iPads and Chromebooks and things like that, which are, you know, not as powerful as regular computers, but they do enough for education. So since we're talking about education so much, what are some ways in which you try to encourage people to go into computer science. I mean, to me, it's an easy sell because the future is built on computers. <laughs> but I think some people might be hesitant or a little intimidated by computer science. What are different ways in which you talk about it to people? So usually, I believe the best possible way is to start with examples. So people might be interested in computer science or artificial intelligence as a field because it is something attractive right now. People are talking about it, but they don't really know will they really feel comfortable in this area. So something that we did as part of the School of STEM, for example, is we created a first course that every single student, no matter what kind of program they're in, first course 
called STEM 100, when students are going pretty much through all of our programs. Each week, they will dedicate themselves to one domain. So first week is going to be about computer science, then we're going to talk about chemistry or physics or math. And according to lectures, labs, as well as assignment posted at the end, students can really understand, okay, this is something that I'm interested in. So first explaining what computer science is, what not only what computer science is, but what computer science is possible to do in order to make certain change. Right now, if we talk about currently attractive roles, this is also one of the interesting topics that I like to talk about with my own students, like what industry wants right now. But what industry wants right now, they might not want in in four years' time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So what will be these future roles is more interesting and then asking them, would you be interested in really tackling this problem? And also, I do like to collaborate with industry a lot. So I like to call industry partners and usually industry partners can see like slightly further away in the future and they can tell us as well, okay, these are some potential roles. Okay, data science is interesting right now. There are so many data scientists on this market. Should we take a data science as a new math and then add one more domain on top of it? That's you know, one of the ideas too. So collaboration with partners is what I believe it's opening all of these future roles and, and helping students figuring out, are they really interested in this field or not? No, it's excellent. And that's interesting going from math to data science and adding another domain because as things advance or as we discover or life becomes a little more complicated, you know, uh, say the math of yesterday is still valid, of course, but for the world of today, we need to add a little more, a little more to, of course, be competitive. I guess another question for you. Do you find when you talk to younger women that they are interested in computer science? Do you find that they're not? I mean, it's such a challenging question, but there's always the representation of females in like, uh, you know, Google and engineering and that that's a very low percentage. What do you find is a hesitancy of some women to go into something like computer science. Is it just because it's generally mostly men? It's obviously more complicated than that, but uh, usually when you listen to media, they distill it down to the simplest possible (laughs) explanation. Well, maybe I actually live in my own bubble, but I don't see it as a problem anymore. Uh, First of all, there are so many girls, almost half, if not even more than half, is part of the computer science, undergraduate and grad schools. Whenever I go uh, for a conference, for example, I see half of the women present and not only on certain roles. So right now we have sort of an equal spread, but I'm, as I said, I'm definitely in my own bubble because, for example, the country I'm coming from, which is Serbia, it's a country in Eastern Europe, we are still not seeing women, not even as part of college. 
not to mention as part of industry over there. So I do see change. I don't see any sort of fear, which is great news, actually. Great news is that there is no fear on neither of two sides. Neither girls are afraid anymore. I don't think boys or men, they were ever against it, so to say. So I'm seeing a really nice collaboration. Uh, I personally, in my own research team, uh, which is not really nice, but I don't have a girl yet. Oh, actually, yes, I do have a first girl. So most of uh, research collaborators, grad students of mine are males. And they don't have an issue with having a female uh, a leader. We assembled this, this team accidentally. I mean, I just figured it out. I might be biased. It's not really nice. I have to change that. But it's probably I didn't really think about it because I don't see it as, as a problem anymore, which is great. That is great. And I mean, the one thing that as we progress in time, I guess you can say, is the goal is to there not be a problem. Of course. And today, if one had a conversation, it'd be really hard to imagine somebody being like, oh, you're a girl. You can't be in computer science. I mean, that's almost unimaginable. There was one thing that I haven't mentioned is that the only thing that that's really hard, given this topic right now, is, for example, if we take a look at job postings, we see, oh, we really want to include more women. Oh, we are giving the advantage to women. And I'm asking, why? <laughs> Let's, we, don't, we don't have to do it anymore. I mean, the doors are finally open. It doesn't even matter, are we going to have more women or more men within a certain team, as long as this team is going to work. And I also do believe in balance. Excellent. No, completely. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Zona Kostic, and we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe quality education must be more affordable. That's why, as a leader in online higher education, we focus on minimizing costs and maximizing return on learner investment. And we believe higher education must be more accessible. So our online programs start every month. American Public University. Within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And just going off something you said a little while ago, I was a little surprised that in Serbia, you said that women aren't really part of college, which is Serbia having been a communist country for such a long time. It seemed like at least the one thing communist countries did was try to make education even. But was that not that way in the former Yugoslavia? True, but unfortunately, in former Yugoslavian countries, if we exclude Slovenia, for example, in former Yugoslavian countries, we, we are there, still there in this uh, communist period of time, which is... We haven't changed anything in the past 30 years. And I can speak about the entire region, so it's not about Serbia only. We used to be part of the same con country, beautiful country you mentioned called Yugoslavia. And I'm saying beautiful country because we used to live in the same country with so many diversity, different languages, different people, different religions, uh, Catholics, Orthodox, Muslims. We all live in, uh, used to live in peace right now. When it comes to former Yugoslavian countries, I can definitely say Slovenia has a really good educational system. Croatia is trying to catch up. I'm not sure they're still they're, they're there yet. When it comes to ev everyone else, we're still stuck. And there is no any, any promising future, at least for right now. Serbia and the entire area, for me personally, is a very fascinating history. Besides of the, of course, tragic wars in the 90s, 
being part of Yugoslavia and being communist, but outside of the sphere, I guess you could say, of the Soviet Union to a point. And then even before that, being the powder keg of World War One, <laughs> And then before that, uh, all the Balkan wars with uh, Greece, and, you know, and then even before that, the Ottomans. We do have a very, very big history, but I have an impression that every single time we, we talk about Balkan, it's a Balkan chaos or a Balkan war. You know, I would really like to hear there is this Balkan initiative when it comes to, you know, ML, AI, bringing more women, inclusion. No, I you know, completely agree. I mean, that, that area is such a crossroads of so many different, putting big quotes, empires, that, you know, seeing that area, uh, you know, truly uh, prosper is, of course, the goal of it. It's, it's the goal of every country. Every country just wants to <laughs> be left alone <laughs> and just, just prosper because of just the way history goes and politics, you know, it's, I think it's, it's tough for some countries. Well, tougher for some than the others. I mean, what kind of cards do, do we have in our own hands? And then based on that, you are making your own first move. Exactly. And we could have an entire con- philosophical, historical conversation about <laughs> Serbia and that area that could go on for hours. Now, your background is art or graphic design, correct? That's my first bachelor. Yeah. So how did you get into AI coming from an artistic and, as I say, graphic design background? My second bachelor was in computer science. I was always having a need to bridge these two domains. That was my ultimate goal. And I believe that I'm finally able of doing it. So first trial was during my graduate studies, as well as uh, my own PhD thesis, and my own PhD project, mostly before the thesis, was about how we can create virtual environment, which is strong CS background needed for it, in order to help on-distance students learn graphics design. So, but this still is a computer science to support graphics design. It was still not the combination of both domains. When I say finally, these days I'm able to combine these domains in a completely new subdomain called explainable AI. So there is this pretty big problem with artificial intelligence is that algorithms are really easy to be deployed and used. So pretty much everyone, even if a person is not a domain expert, they can go online, upload their own data easily, use machine learning as they used to install any program using next, next, next finish. I want to do this. I'm going to use my own data, upload data, predict, finish, without even knowing how machine algorithm works. Right now, this is one problem when it comes to AI. Second one is that not even the AI scientists know how machine learning algorithm came up with its own decisions. So we pretty much have to figure it out, how to get into these inner stages of AI and understand how AI thinks. And the explainable AI as a new subdomain is really interesting right now. Why? Because it employs a lot of visualization. So this serves as a mediator, visualization as a mediator between AI and human being in order for us to understand how AI thinks. But also we are using visualization to give input to AI. So as soon as we have this input, then AI is changing the direction, how it's going to come up with the next decision. So finally, we have the combination of 
arts of visualization and computer science in one subdomain called um, explainable AI. That's very fascinating. And being able to visualize data, it's a very palpable thing for people to understand. And there's been data visualizations for a while now, and I think people really respond to them, even if they have no idea <laughs> how those visualizations come about, but the sheer amount of data that some visualizations. True. And I think New York Times did a great job when it comes to it, because there are so many interesting articles, but sometimes we really need to be domain experts in order to really grasp what's going on behind this article. And then, of course, we don't have time. And then we want to just easily swipe and be able to understand and answer certain questions in like a shorter amount of time. And what New York Times did, they imposed data visualization. So even if I'm not a domain expert, before reading the article, I have a small map. I can interact with this map. I can get engaged. I can learn more by filtering and clicking. And then once I kind of get the big picture, then I can proceed with reading the article. So that serves as an, most like an opening towards a domain that we as a general audience might not be experts in. Oh, that's great. And then this is a final follow-up question. With the election having completed at the time <laughs> of this <laughs> recording, um, was machine learning used when you know, trying to uh, predict voting trends? Because one of the things that really surprised me was just personally Pennsylvania. With the night of the election, Trump was ahead a lot and then they said, nope, it'll, you know, swing and probably go Biden. And for me, that was like, he's up by half a million. But I could see how you have to crunch big data so much to know that every single precinct will vote a certain way. And that's obviously much larger than just having a really big Excel chart. <laughs> <laughs> True. And I think everybody would pay a lot of money in, in order to have such a big data uh, AI algorithm that's going to help them understand, okay, with this, with 99% accuracy, this is the, the expecting rate. And this is how many votes we can expect in every single country. The problem is, and yes, there are so many machine learning algorithms involved in election process as a whole. And when I say process, I'm taking this as a greater picture that uh, we have Facebook, for example, that uses AI to maybe influence certain votes. It uses AI for the advertising we are also using AI in order to predict certain amount of votes. But the ultimate question is like, why are we all failing in it? Why all of these magical, great big data algorithms fail? It's because they ultimately depend on data. And pollsters actually fail to come up with, the, with good samples. That might be one, one of, the, of the reasons. And second reason might be that somebody didn't really want to go that into it. But I will stick with pollsters. Yeah, and the pollsters especially. And it makes sense that the margin of error is much larger than just 2.5% <laughs> these days. And in that time, that person might actually might not tell the truth. Or just because of the election of 2016 and 2020, uh, Trump is a figure which is a little more complicated than just straight D or straight R, straight Democrat, straight Republican. And so it's just more complicated. And especially when, when looking, like you said, with the data, if you're looking at historic data, that doesn't mean current data. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. I mean, we can definitely benefit from historic data in certain percentage. But right now, in order to come up with an accurate predictions given this current 
elections is we really need to come up with good samples. We cannot go and interview everyone, then we don't even have to vote, right? We, we will have this, you know, final decision. What we can also do, and you actually made a really good point, you know, sometimes we cannot be certain about it because whomever is interviewed, he or she might change opinion. So maybe they're going to say, okay, I'm definitely going to vote for, for one side, but then they change their own mind at the end. So, or they just don't want to say, they just don't want to be honest in this uh, respect. So what we can do, we can also use AI to actually <laughs> like basically measure, for example, face or actually have a facial recognition algorithms that they're going to tell us, mm, this person is telling truth or it's not telling truth, but this is definitely something that we shouldn't even think of as a responsible engineers, right? Because what would be the influence of it? We all see negative Im implications of this side of uh, algorithms. Right. You know, and, and that and this is the final thing that makes me think of China right now, where they're doing the uh, their social currency, I believe. I, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but each person gets a score. That's right. That's right. It's like a very black mirror type of score in which not only the, that they're following people uh, on the streets and using facial recognition algorithms. But if they go to a liquor store, for example, they're going to get negative marks. And if they want to go to the bank and ask for a, for a loan, their own interest rate is going to be much higher because they had such, such a bad behavior recently. Yeah. And again, from a Chinese authoritarian communist state, it makes sense that you would give everybody a score. It makes things very simple. This person has a score. This person has a lower score. Um, obviously, the complications are what happens when people get such low scores that they're not outside of society. The state still has to deal with those people. And the other thing is I remember watching an interview with one of the developers in China and the person asked the question, do you see any ethical issues with this? And the person was like, no. <laughs> you know. Probably not. Yeah, over there, I get, you know, which even if over there, maybe sometimes they're hesitant to say it actually on television, but there's huge ethical issues uh, with all that, you know, again, facial recognition, different things like that, giving somebody a score. I mean, again, most people just want to be left alone, <laughs> and just live their lives. Yeah, it, it is all happening, as we like to say, behind Great China's firewall. <laughs> yes, for sure. Well, excellent. Well, uh, thank you for the absolute wonderful conversation. Any last words? Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for everything. And I really hope that we're going to see more and more um, very good and useful, uh, beneficial AI applications, as well as that our own future generations, not only when it comes to computer science students, but I mean all of our students will be able to tackle some of these challenges that we are facing right now. And thank you so much. No, for sure. And today we are speaking with Dr. Zona Kostic about artificial intelligence. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.